Now entering the Bitcoin Podcast Network. It's a Bitcoin Podcast. everybody welcome to another episode of the bitcoin podcast this is episode 308 yep and i'm the host that talks first d i am another host dr Corey petty and if you listen closely you might be able to hear the third host in the background of d's apartment playing with a toy yeah that's lando chewing on a bone Hey, why don't you stop that for like an hour? <laughs> we'll see how that goes. So it'll, it'll provide some nice quality background noise to soothe you during the conversation we're about to have. Yep. So um, how was your week, man? This week was pretty good. Trying to continuously figure out how to reprioritize my days um, so that I can get what's called deep work in. While also like managing all the issues I manage and triaging things, doing all my daily duties, deep work. Come on, man! How you gonna set me up with the line like that and oh, expect yeah. me not to capitalize on it? <laughs> uh, deep work, huh? Um, <laughs> you putting in deep work yep. on a weekly basis, Got sometimes to. three times. It's very important for the for the for the soul, for the mental stability. I say a healthy amount of times to put in deep work is three times a week. I would agree with that. But they also say as people, you know, get older, they end up only putting in deep work maybe a dozen times a year. And, you know, that is not sustainable for for most people, but that's just what people naturally converge to. We'll see. I'm going to I'm going to buck that trend. Fuck that trend, man. Put in that deep work. I am. So what is uh, deep work? What is deep work? Deep work is um the type of stuff that you do that requires um complete focus, right? It's when you get in the zone, you know, like people talk about the flow state when you're doing something and then time passes. Uh it's it's the type of work that requires uh, kind of getting prepared for and you're not able to continue it with distractions. So Typically, when you're dealing with standard culture and work these days, you you get distracted by notifications, people ping you, get an email, so on and so forth. Those types of distractions can take you out of your mindset that keeps you from continuing the work you were doing. Like, whereas like the other type is more like managerial triaging, like uh, kind of surface level stuff. They're both important, but they're two different mental states to be in while actually doing work. So like solving math problems, like really hard math problems, is typically. A type of deep work because you have to 
be very deep in some type of form of logic to get to a conclusion. You need to be thinking very critically in order to like finish the problem. It's not one of those things you can just like pop in and out and get done over the course of a day without having to like think very much. And so I spend a lot of my time doing a lot of managerial stuff, answering emails, answering questions, reviewing stuff. So I'm trying to get into the point where I can have sessions of critical thinking that I can contribute to other things. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an ongoing process. There's a book about it called called Deep Work, which I recommend anyone who thinks about that type of stuff. Get in that deep work. Yeah. But uh, on on that note, uh, like because most of the stuff you do and that type of thing, it's, it's usually somewhat technical or involved. So I'm going to do one of my technical explainers here on the show. Let's open up at that. How about that? No, we're not opening up with a technical explainer. Why not? Deep, Why not? Because we got to get We opened up with the concept of deep work. That's that's we warming them up. No, we we got to. What do you want to open up with? About some other things. Well, first of all, my week was great, Corey. Phenomenal. Okay. <laughs> uh, Lando isn't pissing all over my shit anymore, and um, my work is fulfilling, uh, very much so. How'd you get him to stop and, doing that? Uh, I whooped his ass. No, I'm kidding. I would, uh, I would uh, give him treats. I would when I took him out right after he pissed. I would give him a treat, and right after he shit, I would give him a treat. So I just kind of wanted him to think that pissing outside gets him a treat. And then when he would piss indoors, I would not give him a treat. And I would yell at his face and make him feel real bad about that shit. And he would like these little doggy tears would start formulating. And I was like, yeah, I want you to feel really bad about what you're doing because you're peeing on my things. And then so I just kept repeating that. And then I only feed him um, at the same times of day. So that kind of helped, too. Water too. Um, yeah, you can control his water intake, uh, assuming it's enough to help regulate his his peeing schedule. Yeah, that's something I haven't done, and I should do. I keep one of those like water dispenser things, and I think that's kind of was hassle of it too. So um, now I'm gonna I'm gonna not, not do that anymore. So. Um, yeah, week was good, man. I built an app from scratch, so that was fun. Um, I built an app. I didn't build an app. I built something that works very well for what I need. Um, I don't know. Spreadsheets flow through me now. <laughs> Spreadsheets putting them together and automation between different things. I got forms that push the forms that push the sheets that push the forms that push the sheets. Like it's just all this automated wizardry in the background. And if Google ever goes away, I'm fucked. So like that's what they bank on. That's their that's their business model. (laughs) Yeah, Google needs you. The typical advice you give someone to like maintain job security is like find a way to be indispensable. That's like Mm -hmm. Google's entire business model. It's like oh, your entire life involves around us. So sorry like that's yeah so um yeah i, I built some slick shit for work to help out um try, essentially i'm building like an erp from scratch which is it's been a daunting task of doing it for like the last month um but um yeah man it's going good man I'm talking about crypto trying to buy some status I'm trying to buy a lot of status oh yeah this shit's brought to you by status 
No, wait. Are we done with the ads? Yeah, I think, so. I think we're done. I think we're done with the ads. Oh, we're never done with the ads, man. Might, we'll, we'll probably re-up, but for now yeah. we're done with the ads. So we could or could yeah. not be brought to you by status. I don't know. <laughs> I work. I still work there. I still push it. Sometimes I hope that if I push things enough, like they'll just catch on. Like if I say we're brought to you by Nike, they'll just hear it one day and they're like, you know what? We should sponsor that podcast. <laughs> Some Nike rep yeah. happens to be listening to our show, and he's like, "Dude, why aren't we on that show? We should be." Uh, speaking of which, uh, speaking of status, at least not Nike, uh, we there there seems to be there's a quite a bit of like stuff going on in the TVP channel of status. So if you get on the app, you go to hashtag TVP for a public channel. There's there's people there, and they're talking, and they're doing things. So join us, ask questions, chat, or join the Slack. Where a lot more people are talking and doing things, uh, and uh, yeah, that's where the communication's happening about all the stuff that happens in CVP. So, I would like to to talk about something, and then we'll warm up to the technical topic. And um, it's been about ten years going now, but the price of Bitcoin is just unstoppable, Corey. It's it's seen ten thousand and dropped. It's been above ten thousand and dropped. It hit ten thousand again. I'm starting to think that quite possibly, right underneath our noses, it could be that deflationary monetary standard that's growing over time. I know you disagree, but I don't know, man. It's starting to look up like otherwise. And yet again, I have people from all walks of my past lives DMing me on Facebook, asking me about crypto investment strategies, asking me about like, how should I give some to my daughters and my sons asking me? I have a actual appointment to talk to someone I haven't talked to in 12 years. And they're going to ask me how they should put money into cryptocurrency. So. This demand stays the same. The supply does not the price goes up like it's literally the Hold on. simple economic function. Hold on. What you just said yeah. is, is the opposite. No, the supply goes down. The demand stays the same. You said supply goes up. No, I said, no, you I said, said demand. You, you literally just said supply goes up. I wish I could re- re- oh, rewind this and well, replay it to you while we're recording. Yeah. Demand right. goes up. Supply, supply stays the same or goes down. It trickles in, but it's, Demand doesn't even need to go up. Demand can stay the same if supply keeps going down. Why does the supply go down? Well, the supply that's coming in, the supply entering is going down. And then over time, I think near like 2027, we're going to be real close to that 21 million mark. So then that's it. That's all that's in circulation. There is no more Bitcoin coming in. Yep. Right, so um, people hold like the the tendency in Bitcoin is to hold it and not use it. Yeah, and Willy Woo just released a really long um, kind of Twitter analysis of how he thinks the market has transformed, and he thinks that it used to be that the miners dedicated uh, uh, determined the price, but he thinks that large exchanges are now going to determine the price because they hold most of it. And they're going to be determined the price based upon how much fees they want to earn off of the exchange rates. 
So um, he said we should look for a long term, slowly up but sideways growth for all of crypto as miners stop being like the drivers of what the price can and can't do and exchanges get their hands on more and more crypto. Well, if miners aren't incentivized to mine, that's an issue. Yeah, but they're always going to be incentivized to mine. Assuming that, fees. like, well, well, yeah, assuming that the fees go up. That's mm-hmm. assuming that we have enough transaction volume that the fees go up to compensate um, the lack of tokens they're getting with each block. So, like the the mining reward, which is the how how you do inflation in Bitcoin, is continuously going down. There's a halving coming up, which means that it's going to be cut in half, and that means that basically the amount of money that miners are making is cut in half uh, be- until the fees go up with every transaction. So for those that don't know, uh, with every block that's mined, uh, there are two ways of, of earning revenue for, for the miner of that block. One is the, uh, like the, the mining reward, the Coinbase transaction uh, that, that mints brand new Bitcoin into the ecosystem. This is on a geometrically decreasing curve over time that halves every four years. That's what the halvening is called. Uh, and the other source of revenue is the transaction fees. So every time you send a Bitcoin transaction, it requires a fee. That fee gets basically aggregated into um, all of the transactions that are fit to a block. And all of those transaction fees also go to the miner. So over time, as the inflation goes down, because it's a deflationary currency, then the transaction fees need to go up if only just to cover the costs of of run of mining, right? And if that doesn't happen, um, the inevitable conclusion is that the quote unquote security of the Bitcoin network will go down because people will leave, like the miners will leave, and the hash rate will will go down. So the amount of hashing that's being done to mine a block will go down, which is which is like by default, the security of the network. Mm. Miners so, are always going to, miners going to stay mining, man. We'll see. I mean, yeah, they will, but like the amount of them and the like associated cost of infrastructure, it changes dynamically with that type of thing. What, every two weeks, I think? Yeah. 4,000 bucks. I mean, I forget. Um, 216 bucks, so I think. Yeah. So I forget that number. Either way, uh you know I am seeing some things that are weird though. Like Ether is starting to decouple from Bitcoin as far as its like behavior, like in the like Ether's price is so trick question mark. Right? It used to be quasi like you could make some like you could put some tea leaves in like okay, you know, Bitcoin goes up shortly after Ethereum would go up because people would kind of take some of their Bitcoin and, and rebalance into Ether. And that was something that was typical. It was like, you know, drinking water after a long run. It's going to happen. Uh, but that's no longer happening. Now Ether kind of does its own thing. And I think so, I think it does that because Ether is, is connected to the dollar in so many ways now. You can just go straight into Ether instead of having to go Bitcoin Ether. Yeah, um, that's what I was going to say. And and there's other like um, there's other tokens that you have to get with Ether. So Ether is kind of its own little monster nowadays, which is which is kind of cool. So, yeah, back in the day, 
Um, the only way to get Ether was to buy Bitcoin first. That's mm-hmm. no longer the case. So as that becomes more and more, and there's a bunch of other use cases that people have to go to Ethereum to do, then it starts to decouple because you no longer have to go through Bitcoin to do things. Um, yeah. Granted, like Bitcoin's still the dominant liquidity provider, meaning that like you can sell and you can buy and sell um, enough without changing the price because there's available people that like the market, open market is large enough that um, you don't have slippage when people buy and sell larger, larger amounts. It's still kind of the dominant player there. Yeah, man. And I think it's really cool. Like as a long-term investor who I can say I am confidently, it's been a mighty long time I've been in this market. That means that this market is getting more diverse and robust. It means that you can now have different digital assets, assets that perform differently, even within its own little micro portfolio and your grander portfolio. Um, to me, I like robustness because like if one thing isn't doing too hot, another thing usually is, and you still maintain your purchasing power over a longer period of time. So, um, yeah, man, bonds, gonna, nigga. diversify your bonds. Uh, <laughs> we're going to get in trouble for you using that word. <laughs> I'm going to give you a free pass. That's for, fine. You've given me, you've given me a, a, a black card a couple times. I can, I can use it occasionally. Yeah, it's very true. You eat barbecue. I'm going to, I hope. Oh, <laughs> I want to be in trouble with that council. It's okay. Damn, it's a Corey. quote. It's a quote. <laughs> um, it's a properly timed ew. quote. Anyway, let's talk about something technical, which is like, like what you were saying earlier. Like we talked about price and, and kind of people coming into the space, having to start using the technology, um, typically have this off putting feeling when starting to use wallets because they don't understand some of the fundamentals such as private keys and public keys and signing and encryption and digital signatures and things like that that are kind of at the very core of how this stuff works. Um, so like my friend, like a technical explainer, which is something that I've noticed people either get wrong or don't quite understand. Um, I want to go over kind of what private keys are. And um, how they fit into like the cryptography of this whole thing, and what you can do with private and public keys. So first off, like most of the beginning of quote unquote encryption and cryptography was done through what's called symmetric cryptography. And that is, um, I would take a piece of data, I would encrypt it using a password, basically, and then I would send it off. Some type of, some type of cipher that required me to have specific knowledge. And then in order to decrypt that and to make it back into clear text, that person would need to somehow through some other channel get that password or secret knowledge and then they could decrypt it. Right. That's a shared secret. So you, you encrypt something with a, with a secret. You then give them both the encrypted information and the secret, and they can decrypt it, right? This is still how a lot of things are done today uh, in a much more complicated way, but that's the general idea. There's a shared secret that's necessary to encrypt and decrypt information. And then um, what came along was uh, asymmetric cryptography, where 
through some through some fun math, you generate both a but you generate two keys, two secrets. One's called the private key, the other one's called the public key. And you get and instead of just do, being able to do encryption with this, whereas like I would encrypt something, some piece of data with my public key, and then anyone. So anybody can encrypt a piece of data with my public key. So I can share that around. Say you want to give me a piece of message. You say, hey, what's your public key? I'm going to send you something. You encrypt that data with my public key. And the only person that's capable of decrypting that thing is going to be me with my private key. That's why it's called a public key and private key. You can share the public key. People can encrypt data specifically for you or anyone who holds that private key. And you know, without a shadow of a doubt, that it's safe. And the only person that can see that information is the person who holds the corresponding private key, right? So those two keys are inexorably linked together. You share one so that people can encrypt information. You're leveling up. What is that noise? I was putting in two coins because I like to say something. I was gonna, you know, <laughs> I wanted to say something, so I'm chiming in. <laughs> okay, I put in. I got, that's a weird way to chime in, but let's let's go. No, like if you're at an arcade, you know, and you're playing, I put in two coins and I'm ready to hit my press oh, start button. Oh, got it. What do you want to say? I wanted to say that is why it is so very, very important audience, especially the newer of you that are just getting in this crypto craze because this is the fifth time you've heard about it in a decade. And you're like, you know what? I might as well. If you don't have the private keys or do not know who has the private keys is structuring how they have those private keys then you don't own your crypto. You don't even, you can't even remotely dispute how you can get to your crypto. What I mean by that is right now, if you're using Coinbase, which you most likely are if you're new, Coinbase has your private keys. They are the custodian of your crypto, which means that they can do what they want with that crypto. Will they? Probably not because there will be heavy legal ramifications, especially because a lot of their clientele has very, very deep pockets. But the more you get away from the coin bases of the world and you go to Jimmy Bruschuto down the street, who's rocking a Volvo from 1998, but he's that crypto guy in your neighborhood and he's got your private key and he's doing things with your crypto. Well, Jimmy Bruschuto is most likely to hop in his Volvo and the next day you'll see him in a newer Volvo, maybe a C70 that drives itself and he's got your crypto and he's not giving it back. Right. All right. I'm done, Corey. Cool. It's all your. That's a very important point. What I haven't gotten into. So what I just talked about was, was, it was encryption, right? Someone uh, encrypting a piece of data that only you can unlock with your private key. But there's another part of this, and this is the more heavily used part of cryptography in all of blockchain. And that's digital signatures, Right. Now, what you can do is sign a piece of information with your private key that then anyone can verify came from you, right? I can digitally sign things with my private key such that anyone with my public key can verify that it came from, from that private key. And this is what happens in all of crypto, all of, all of blockchain is... When I make a transaction, I'm signing it with my private key so that everyone knows it came from a specific public key, which is tied to your address, right? And so that way, 
you you know without a shadow of a doubt that the person who owns that private key is the person that sent the message. That's different, right? It's, but it's very important. It allows you to have ownership and attribution of of messages on the internet. So without that, you can really you could really uh, pretend to be somebody that you're not. But you can't fake digital signatures. There, there's ways, but based on the way we do it in blockchain, can't fake digital signatures. So you always know that a message that you're receiving came from the person you're expecting it to, which is important because if you're going to have ownership of digital assets, you need to make sure that the person who's saying, I'm relinquishing this ownership and giving it to somebody else through trading digital assets is the person that's, that's, that's supposed to be saying that and not someone else. So mm-hmm. digital signatures are the, the, the mainstay of trust or trustlessness and all of blockchain because you don't have to worry about a third party verifying that Alice is sending the message and not Bob. And so that's what's happening in all of these things. You're making transactions that say, I want to do this thing. And then in order for people to believe you and for miners to validate that type of thing, you digitally sign it and a miner receives it, says, checks the digital signature, says, yep, that came from the, from the address associated with it. Yep, they have the available tokens to transfer that type of thing. Okay, I'm adding it to my ledger. That's what's happened with validation miners. So that's your public public and private key in asymmetric cryptography. Now, that then tells you why it's important to hold on to those things and keep them secret. Because whoever has control over those things can do all of those things in your name. So you need to keep them safe. Now, we're working on better and better ways to make this more easily usable. So you don't have to understand all this type of stuff. But it's you. you. If you're going to, if you assume that a bank account is an extension of you, and when you do stuff with that bank account, it's an extension of your intention. When I give you money, I'm making a statement. I don't want anyone else to make that statement. But if someone has my private keys, they can. Right? And so most of all of this stuff is key management. We have to make it easy and usable and so on and so forth and call it names like account and wallet and so on that people have a better intuition around it. Mm-hmm. So there's like a, there's a reason why it's, it's important that crypto succeeds because it's going to change some behaviors that were fundamentally put in place incorrectly over the last, I don't know, 20 years of the internet. I hope and so. And that is having... No, no responsibility over your digital identity whatsoever. I mean, we've kind of changed the like when I was a kid, it was just understood. If you're on the Internet, you're not you. You're someone else. But Facebook came and they literally changed that completely. And it's never going back where people understand if you're on the Internet, you could be you. And, and that subtle that subtle difference changes a lot of things. Yeah. Right. And now that we have crypto and there's digital traceability, now that people know that you could be you, well, your behaviors need to change too. Right. Just like you don't go back in the day, you wouldn't go around putting your address on anything and everything. And now, some reason we do that. Or you don't walk, yeah. You don't walk around writing your social security number on the curb. Right. You, you have these natural behavior practices installed which you just don't do that protect your identity, protect your life and probably your livelihood. 
Right. And crypto, we've got to start installing some of that stuff to, when it comes to digital stuff, because digital uniqueness is a thing that's out of the box now and it's not coming back. So it's not going back in the and box. ownership. Right. So like when you have digital uniqueness and ownership of that uniqueness, you can you can attach an identity to that. Right. There needs like there needs to be an identity that owns. And so the more that becomes real, the more people need to take responsibility for that identity and, and, and taking care of it. I was thinking, I was talking, so I was driving back from Ohio. Um, I think it was two weeks ago. I forget. Uh, but I was having a conversation with my wife about um, the fact that we don't have the social wherewithal and like common sense with respect to how to conduct yourself digitally. Like we do, especially around money, like we do in like in, in IRL in real life, right? So, for instance, mm-hmm. um, if I were to walk into a room that's full of the full of people, I said even better. If I like walk into like a, a public place and pull out thousands and thousands of dollars of cash and start like counting it and acting confused, people are gonna say that's a dumb idea. Or if I like walk into a room and lay a fat wallet of cash on the table and walk out and presume that no one's going to touch it when I don't know anyone in that everyone in that room that's a stupid idea people are going to be uncomfortable with that like why is he doing that that's not smart right but doing the digital equivalent of those things everyone seems to fucking do there isn't that that gut reaction of like oh no stop doing that that's unsafe or like that's not how you're supposed to do that mm-hmm. it doesn't exist yeah and, and it's going to change it's going to change naturally over time. It has time. to. People people lose. Like yeah. that that social awareness in real life is because we've heard so many stories or experienced it ourselves on loss based on stupid things that we've done. As a society. Yeah. And there's no ramifications. There's no ramifications for doing this the like the dirt and the stupid shit and the like we're close we're quickly moving toward a time or the behavior that you have on your end of the keyboard that has effect on someone's life on the other end of their keyboard isn't going to be totally expunged because it happened on the internet. Like we're getting to that point in time where your how you behave online is going to affect your real life. And so now that that's a thing, people are going to start behaving differently online. They're going to start doing things differently online. Um, because we we're in that time. Like you can't nowadays online, you can't go online and say a bunch of foul ass shit that stirs up a bunch of controversy and ends up taking lives. And you, there's no ramifications for that. You, you get ramifications for that. So as we move towards that time where the line is blurred, people's behaviors are going to start changing too. So I don't know. It's going to be fun times. Yeah. I witness it. But like, a good transition to that end of, end of the interview we have today is like I think games are going to play a large part of that. Oh yeah, right. So like the more we're able to associate real value with the effort we put into video games as we grow up with them, the more we start to realize um, that connection of the digital identity and the real identity. Because there's because there's associated loss with of value based on based on the things that you do, 
and your interactions in between and what happened, like the consequences of those interactions. So like, for instance, like we, we, we interview a, a game, a blockchain game, this episode. And part of that blockchain game is you're able to actually take out the assets that you earn within the game into an open market and buy, sell, and trade them as NFTs on Ethereum. Random. Right? Yep. And so that's that's a direct translation of human energy into real world value. Which, which has is been fucking bananas to me. Been missing in the gaming industry. If it, if done properly, that's I think that's the the flow of how the younger generations come up and start to realize that um, who they are on the internet and in, in, in some circumstances is exactly who they are in the real world and they have to conduct themselves accordingly because we came up with the internet like you said we're like who you are on the internet is not you and we've seen it bleed over into like who I am on the internet is exactly me it's just not owned by me it's owned by the companies who hold that information mm-hmm but that's going to change. Oh, I, I love this game, by the way. Imagine a game where you can like mine in the video game and turn it into real money in real life. I've started playing it. I've uh, yeah. I, I, I have it. I'm trying to figure out how to get around and go through the tutorials and stuff. It's it's pretty cool. I'm going to keep playing it and uh, yeah, give some feedback later on the line. Yeah, I mean, I want to I want to try it out. It's just I got to find some time to allocate a few hours to. Get the hang of yeah. the on the on ramping the on ramping of games like this isn't as necessarily like the easiest. It's not like a you know Killer Queen Black where you just hop in and, and enjoy or Mario or yeah. self explanatory. It, it, it takes some. Yeah, I'll give you I'll give you a code, and then we can fucking just have a, a Bitcoin podcast fleet. Yeah, for uh, those who are listening who are interested in this game. Um, I will give away three game codes on Steam to those who'd like to start playing it and give it a shot. So cool. Uh, you have to you have to contact me via status in order to get these game codes. So if you want a game code, you want to do this. Contact me via status. You can find me at Petty. When you search for a new contact. I'll give you I'll give you a game code. First three to do that, get one. Easy giveaway. It's like a ten dollar. Yeah, it's like ten dollars to buy the game on Steam. Yeah. Now the tough part is you remembering that you said that, and them hitting you up on status, and you're like, "Hey, I want my game code." And you're like, "What the no, fuck?" I remember are you that. I don't. I don't. I don't do giveaways. Like I, this is the. I remember the first giveaway I think I've ever done. So like, I have some game codes. I'll give them away. Yeah. Yeah, and I'll do a giveaway too. If you meet me on the streets of an undisclosed location, I'll get you a bag of cotton candy. Uh no, <laughs> I hope gonna, that someone does that. <laughs> yeah. Corey's gonna follow through. You gotta hit him on that status app. Should we hit him in the hashtag TBP channel? Oh, they should go there anyway if they're gonna get on status. That's where that's where I'm hanging out. I can dig it. Let's uh transition uh, the interview cool. because that's we just we just we just teed it up. So take it home. Yeah, man. this was a fucking great interview. So here it is. Hello, hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to another Bitcoin podcast interview. So uh, this interview is going to be dope. This interview is going to be dope because I am a gamer. I like the video games. I grew up on video games. My very first game was Wolfenstein. 
And I don't know if that's something a six-year-old should be playing by himself. But my dad let me have a computer and I, I just dove straight into the gore. And so um, I've been playing games my whole life. And so we, we are going to be joined uh, by the CTO of Crypto. Sorry, let me get this right. I'm going to get this right. Lucid Sight Gaming Company, the CTO, Mr. Fazri Zubair. Yeah, that's correct. Hell yeah. I learned phonetics. So, <laughs> so Fazri, what we'd like is, is for you to, to introduce yourself to our audience, you know, how you fell in love with cryptocurrency, um, how intimate that relationship has gone, um, if it's taken to the next level. And just kind of introduce yourself to us, man, who, who you are and, and how you got into crypto. Sure thing. Uh, well, I'm Fazri Zubair. I am the CTO and one of the co-founders of Lucid Sight. Uh, Lucid Sight was founded in 2015 as a game development studio here in Santa Monica. And as of 2016-17, we started looking into cryptocurrencies and crypto technology and primarily blockchain and how it affects uh, gaming and what the opportunities for in gaming. Um, so from that point that we created two titles, MLB Champions, it's a licensed Major League Baseball game with both uh, MLB and MLBPA, where we created a new rendition of baseball cards, which are 3D modeled figures that have various attributes. And we have a second game, uh, CSE, uh, Crypto Space Commander. Uh, this is one of my personal projects, and this is a space MMORPG, uh, similar to EVE Online or Star Trek Online, uh, where you command a ship, you acquire resources, you can craft items, and then you combat, and you build better things and better items and dominate space. This is a social, economic-driven game uh, that's been live now for in early access for about six months, fully playable for about a year. Mm. Before, we, before we dive into things, <laughs> so... I may have mentioned some on the podcast before when talking about online games and, and, and digital resources when they get mapped to real world resources, um, specifically about Eve, it's something that happened a long time ago in the Eve ecosystem. So uh, what they did, Eve in particular, was um, at one point you could pay the subscription fees with the in-game currency of Eve, which gave it a mapping of how much real world value in-game resources were worth. And Eve is a very complicated MMORPG. Yeah. I mean, it it has real world econ like ec economies, real world like finances, banks, loans, you name it, it's in there. And at one point, someone basically like one very very large central bank within the entire ecosystem, if I remember correctly, basically just said, uh, "Screw y'all, I'm taking all of your money." Bought the biggest ship that was possible and says, "Here's my address. Come get me." No one could do anything about it because they couldn't do anything to the ship. <laughs> and 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 I think it's it's one of like the like it 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 was it made tremendous the news. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you imagine something like that happening within your ecosystem? Like that, like building something that for one grows to the size where you have these ridiculously sized economies, and then um, someone having the centralized power to co-opt all that money and just flaunt it. Well, you know, it, it, it's funny because I'm a big EVE Online player. I was back in the day. And, you know, my heart kind of started there. And that's where a lot of CSE's inspiration came from. 
Um, and I remember that incident, and that could happen in almost any MMO. Look, there's a layer of trust when you have guild mates. You give them access to your guild vault, you give them access to items. In that scenario, yeah, someone just had a bad day, decided to take all those items, lock them up, and then be like, you know, what are you going to do about it? And, you know, by Eve's own policy, they're never going to interfere with that. It's similar to us. I mean, if these are two individuals, you trusted them, you gave them access to your items. If you take, if they take your item and don't return it, that's between you two to figure out. Mm. Um, and, you know, unlike, I think the, the most expensive ship in Eve is about $10,000. It takes six months to make one of their Titans. Um, we have a Dreadnought in our game that's sold uh, for $42,000. Twice. Uh, the person who bought it, they sold it to someone else for a couple thousand profit. Uh, it, the, the, the dollar value so far we've been seeing, we have single ships that are in thousands of dollar range. Our enterprise sold for 30,000. Uh, we had a Star Trek event in August yeah. uh, where we auctioned one off. Um, it, it's going to be interesting when we come out of early access here and we go full persistence. Uh, this is something that's coming up in the near future where when that ship gets destroyed, we burn the blockchain record. It's gone. That asset is nullified. Uh, so there's going to be real, real consequence now to, you know, flying out into unsafe space. Um, and it's exciting. Uh, it's not going to be exciting when you lose a $30,000 ship, but it'll be exciting, uh, to, you know, a couple hundred dollar ships here and there. Expecting I got two questions for you. The first question is, are you going to disguise, like, are you going to hide your identity from the real world? Cause like if somebody loses a lot of money, like, you need to go dark, man. They'll be upset. Like they'll be really upset about that. Yeah, two, I mean, that, oh, I was going How do I start a, a digital pawn shop? I want to start a digital <laughs> pawn shop. No, I'm serious. Like I want to. Is there a world where like I could walk? I just imagine a world you walk into a real pawn shop and you're like, "Yo, I've got this forty thousand dollar digital ship. <laughs> can I can I give it to you?" <laughs> and you could take this digital ship and resell it on the internet for $45,000? Like, there's a market there, am I right? Or am I, I mean, right? The, the market already exists. I mean, that's what we, we can get into it here, but we do $100,000 of volume a day in CSC right now. That's oh, what's transacted between users for these digital items. That's uh, so going up, so we launched that marketplace on the 14th of January. OpenSea has been running a third-party marketplace for longer than that. And, you know, they see several thousand dollars a day in transaction volume as well. Um, but yeah, you know, th- th- this currently exists. Uh, so question one, uh, you know, we're a, we're a private company, but, uh, look, it's a game first and foremost. You know, you should never be just like uh, when you do anything, never risk money. You're not willing to lose. Um, we have a lot of safeguards in the game to really prevent a user from accidentally doing something stupid. Uh, we provide insurance and safe areas really to lose your ship for real. You're entering the most dangerous area of the game called fringe space. You're notified that you're entering the most dangerous area of space. And once you're in there, you, you know that the, the, the risks are high. But the rewards are high, too. We have a resource, uh, one of our largest commodities in the game called Trilight. It's used for crafting almost everything. It's the main source of fuel in the universe. It's very scarce. It's only found in that uh, risky area. So there's a high incentive for people, even new players, to come in, take their cheap, crappy ships that cost pennies, fly out there, try to find any trilight, bring it back, sell it, get some money, upgrade their equipment, get a better ship, go out and try to get more. Or uh, what a lot of our guilds have been doing is been creating full-on operations. 
actually just a few days ago, there were six engagements in fringe space where two guilds were just duking it out over a resource node. Um, right now in the game, for the next uh, few weeks at least, there's no persistent loss other than resources when you get blown up. So anything you're uh, crafting, you're harvesting, can get destroyed when your ship is blown up. But starting in probably a week or two, modules, ships, all of that is gone. We have an insurance system in the game, so users can insure their ships to a certain amount and recover something, like enough to craft it or enough to buy from the secondary market based on uh, value of the ships. Uh, but it's uh, it, it's still going to be a high risk in that. Okay. Um, um, now here comes some interesting parts about this. How how is the blockchain related? Like, okay, first, why did you decide yeah. to even look in? Like. What made you decide to implement blockchain? Where was it an efficiency gain for you? Why did you want to do it? And how does it help your business as opposed to just using traditional databases and doing the standard route for um, your games like microtransactions and just handling it all yourself? Oh, absolutely. Well, you know what? It's actually a blend of technologies. So 99% of the actions that happen in CFC and in our MLB crypto game happen off-chain. We created our own system called Scarcity Engine, which emulates Ethereum blockchain, but on high-speed databases with high-speed APIs. So it's able to emulate the results and the functionality, but responses a lot quicker. When a user is ready to take their asset out, let's say if they want to sell it on OpenSea or if they want to secure it in their hardware wallet, it's just a couple clicks in the UI. It gets pushed to their Ethereum wallet. The asset gets checked out of our universe into the blockchain universe. And then they can do whatever they want with it and eventually check it back in or give it to you and you can check it back in. Once the asset's out of the game, it's out of the game. It does its thing on the blockchain and comes back in. Um, so no, when no we designed the system, the reason we chose to use blockchain is because blockchain provides a very important layer. I mean, blockchain really provides a cryptographically secured distributed record of digital item ownership. So that that serial number, let's say. The serial number for the enterprise that sold for $30,000. That's absolutely unique. Our contracts enforce it. We cannot even generate another one. There's It was a one-time generation, and then it's done. That is lost if we don't have blockchain. Because anyone can edit a database. We could go in, and I could, on the database, create 20,000 enterprises. But it's very easy to see that that doesn't exist on the blockchain. It doesn't have a blockchain unique record. So the value proposition isn't there. It's not that same enterprise. It's not that one that sold for 30000 And that's what blockchain really provides. It's that, that proof layer, that, that, that layer where users can verify the, the economic integrity of the game. Which, you know, EVE Online has a robust economy and users trust that the developer is not going to inflate it. Same with us. Users trust that we're not going to put a lot of resources into the universe and overinflate an item. Blockchain adds that additional layer of proof that we're not doing. So basically, what you're saying is it's built a virtualized emulation machine that sits on top of the blockchain that you have quite a bit of control over. It allows you to generate assets and then do whatever you want. And then when the user wants to, I'm assuming you did this for scalability reasons. Um, Absolutely. We don't have the technology yet on the Ethereum, the Ethereum ecosystem or anywhere to. Um, have the same permissionless, trustless guarantees while also having scale. Maybe one day we will, and you won't have to do that type of thing. But for now, that that that's the ecosystem. And then people then have real strong kind of ownership guarantees once it's been minted and given to them. How does if they, when they do that and they sell it to the market and say someone buys it and then brings it back into the ecosystem, is that thing 
lost from the blockchain and then virtualized again? No, the, the, the item goes into custody. So basically, the way the entire system works, once an item gets spawned in our universe, it goes into custody with a scarcity engine. So there's a wallet address that holds the item. It doesn't okay. actually mint the item until you, someone requests to take it outside of custody. At that point, it gets minted, dropped in our custody wallet, and then transferred to that user. When the user brings it back in, it gets held in that custody wallet, but it doesn't get destroyed. It gets held there, though, because eventually, depending on the asset class, it could be destroyed. So if your ship blows up, then we trigger a burn sequence that will burn that asset off the wallet and then it's gone. Oh, man, that's, that's awesome. Give <laughs> me a good time. Okay. How do I make a digital pawn shop? How do I do it? <laughs> so we have an active Discord, uh, which right now has been the main place for what we call player trades. And there are users, uh, plenty of users that come in like, hey, I'm done playing the game for a while. Anyone want to buy my items? And people will start bidding up to buy their entire collection. And the users will transfer the items through OpenSea using a secure medium or through our in-game uh, marketplace to use a secure medium. Users will buy it up, and there you go. And there, there is profit to be made. It, you know, players churn. Every game has churn of players, especially when you have new players coming in. Those mm-hmm. players that are churning out now have assets that have value. It might be pennies, it might be dollars, but it is value. And that kind of comes back to the principle of why we did this. Everything in CSE has a dollar value. Um, we have this uh, system that we kind of built. Uh, it's an analytics system called the Gale. It uh, stands for Game Asset Ledger, or in CSE we call it Galactic Asset Ledger. And what this does is it looks at both the virtual transactions, the hard currency transactions, which are like IAP, and the Ethereum transactions that happen everywhere for our assets. It figures out what the dollar value of each of those are and then attributes a dollar value to a resource in the game. So, For example, if you mine one ton of iron, that one ton of iron could be used to create about 1,400 different items. There'll be a component in that. Well, each of those items have value. Some of those items have value that have been proven on the blockchain to sell for. We take all that data, aggregate it down, say that iron's worth 0.01 cents. And when you mine that iron in space, you'll actually see in the UI a dollar value tick up how much money you've made so far in this session mining asteroids or destroying NPCs, or how much uh, dollar value has been lost when an item gets destroyed. So, We're gonna create some issues, man. It sounds cool as shit, but people are gonna get pissed. I love it. I love it. Know, there's videos already on YouTube you can find. Someone figured out how to make $20 an hour playing CSE. And he shows like the what what to mine, where to find it, where to scan it, and then how he collects the resources and craft that, sell the item. I mean, there's a whole loop. This is, this is a, the, the, I think, the most true game economy in terms of like there's actual value to the items in the game. All done in a very respectable, respectable way that but one honors like the game and its intent and the users playing it. We're trying very hard not to be pay to win, but give users a freedom to like exploit resources in the game, create, uh, create monopolies. Uh, there's already, um, most recently, actually about three, four weeks ago, we stole, we sold, um, station facilities. So in the game, there's two main things you can do. You can refine resources to make components and you can craft NFTs. To do so, you had to do them in facilities at stations. So stations will have a facility that will use resources and it takes a certain amount of time. We put them up for sale and we didn't really expect an instant sellout. But within the first day, over 50% were sold out. 
And most of them were bought by, you know, large groups of players that started creating monopolies on certain items. There's certain shields that are really powerful in the game. And now you have a whole assembly line putting it together. People mining the resources, delivering it to the station, 14 or 15 facilities at the station manufacturing that. That item gets created. Then you'll see someone mint those items and put some on OpenSea, put some on the in-game marketplace, and users are buying them up. And this is before any of these items actually get destroyed. After about, in the next two weeks here, destruction will happen. When your ship's blown up, about 50% of the equipment you have in it is just burnt. Is that the byline for the for the news that when you, when you release, destruction will happen? Like Destruction will <laughs> happen. Yeah. Actually, the byline for the news is going to be announcing, um, which we'll talk about here in a second, our next Star Trek event. So uh, we're doing another event with Star Trek. Uh, we are bringing the the ships from the Picard series that recently launched into the universe. So you'll have the uh, La Serena, uh, and we're going to also have the original Enterprise E. But on top of that, I think our key item in this auction is going to be a full-size one-to-one board cube. It's the only user-playable board cube in any Star Trek game right now. Um, so this will be massive. It's bigger than any ship we have in the CSC universe. Um, but one user, one lucky user who wins that auction will be able to have that. It'll have its own unique blockchain identification number. It'll be a one-of-one one item, meaning no no more than one can ever be minted and enforced by the contract. And uh, it's going to be going to be pretty epic. I'm going to be jealous of that guy flying around with it. Yeah, I want to see that. I want to I want to be that guy actually. I just want to sit there and have people stare at me. But like, I want to get back. Like, I want to get back to that. But I also want to step take a few steps back and just continue kind of that economics discussion you were having. Like, it's yeah. not a that's not an easy, that's not an easy job. Like the economies in these things are not trivial. And when you have kind of the interplay of multiple fabricated monies that then combine together based on real, like real user input and effort uh, into assets that can be sold on a market, uh, for one, like that's hard to simulate. And guess, yeah. and you're and you're kind of coming up with the, uh, I guess, how did you it end up understanding the um, economics of what things are worth related to each other? Where is that value calculation actually happening? Are you looking at the on on like real world transactions and then looking at the components that make them up to find out what they're actually worth, or did you guess at those things to give you an idea of what? things should be sold for like i'm very curious as this kind of like emergent real world price discovery mechanism happens because you like you have it built into the system but i don't know how it's happening and what control over that you actually have like if you make a patch and update um the cost to do something does that is that kind of potentially drastic consequences in the economies oh absolutely so a lot of this is attributed to our algorithm gale um, it's extremely complex, and we, we 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 put a lot of thought into it when we developed it. And you know, I'm a huge you know, I'm a huge space game nerd. I love the game genre. I love Eve Online. I love economic games. Our design team, uh, you know, we have uh, guys from Zanga, guys who work on Tomb Raider. That you know, we we all have a very good understanding of what these game economies look like. And adding blockchain, real money, out of this whole new challenge is like, okay, how do you value this game item? Because it's not like you could just buy this item for an IEP that's worth a dollar. If that was the case, you know this item's worth a dollar. 
users could also grind for this item. Users could also use the virtual currency that's earn only, where they they're doing missions to complete to buy this item. Users could sell it on secondary markets. Well, first we just created a system that aggregated all that information. We brought it in, and then we came up with a uh, formula to derive and weight certain aspects. For example, a user that might sell a um, photonic cannon, the Star Trek item that came out of the Voyager series, which one of is one of our more popular items in the game right now. A user might sell that for a thousand in-game currency, which is nothing. It's fractions of fractions of pennies because they didn't realize that what they were doing. Where someone on the blockchain might sell that on OpenSea for $400. Well, obviously, when we figure out the value proposition, we need to wait correctly. So we always wait towards what is more real money. So the blockchain value, or if someone bought that with GFC, which is our hard currency in game that can only be purchased, we know a approximate one to one cent value for that. We know how much Ethereum was that day when they sold. We know how much GFC was worth for that user, depending on how much they bought. So we could come up with that spot value of what that sale was for. And then we derive a, a weighting calculation to balance it out and then come up with that final, this is probably worth $350. Now, to your other point, yeah, if we make a change and all of a sudden make that weapon 100 times better or we add a new module that makes refining 20% more efficient, that will change that value of the item. But Gale's a live system. It's always pulling in new data and refining its calculations. In the beginning, when we first launched Gale, there were certain resources in the game. When you mined one of it, it said it was worth a million dollars. So everyone knew that was incorrect. People really liked the idea of going out and mining for an hour and becoming like a billionaire. Uh, but eventually those numbers settled as we started getting more data. So as we feed more data into this, Gale gets smarter, Gale gets faster, Gale gets more accurate, and Gale is generalized across all our games. So you'll actually see this in our MLB Champions game as well soon, where you'll start getting approximate values of what a Mookie bets on a legendary base with a silver bat is worth compared to a Mookie bets on a standard base with a wood bat. I want to, before we move on, I want to give an anecdote um, to people who may not uh, grasp the consequences of such kind of real world market dynamics in video games and the ability to grind and what people end up doing when that's the case. So uh, I've said this before, I think previously when talking about in-game currencies and they get matched to real world value, um, I've for a long time played Diablo 3. Um, and when Diablo 3 came out, it had one of its, I guess, innovations or changes that everyone was excited about is that um, instead of trading, uh, like say, Diablo 3 is a is a dungeon hack and slash kind of game where you basically you kill a bunch of uh, randomly generated uh, monsters with uh, like powered up role like, like role playing characters, and you and you gather loot, and you're you know it's, it's a random drop. And then sometimes you get really rare loot, sometimes and so forth. And you all, all the loot has different attributes and uh, you make your character stronger and so on and so forth. And so sometimes you get something you don't want, but some, the play, person you're playing with does want this thing. So you trade it in game. And uh, what Diablo 3 did is they changed that and made a, an auction house. And not only did they make an auction house where you could you now put your items up for sale on, a, on an auction house and have the user base bid on them. They did a real money auction house where you put your items up into an auction house and you could sell them for dollar amounts and then exit that money from the system. And I think the maximum you could make was $500 for any given item. And so what, what had happened, and uh, they eventually stopped this, because this happened, is that people basically bought the game 
to mine for specific types of glute and then sell them um, for large amounts of profit. And then what ended up happening, and I was a part of this, uh, I no longer played Diablo 3. I played the Real Money Auction House. Uh, I just specifically looked for uh, overpowered items that were undervalued, bought them, and then resold them on the market for profit. And the almost, I think the entire user base, or like the majority of the user base, was bought at accounts and people playing Real Money Auction House. And so when you have these types of dynamics that can be gamed, they will be gamed. And unfortunately, sometimes like your game no longer becomes playable for the majority of people who use it. They're not doing what you sought off, sought after to do in terms of creating a fun, edu- like a creative game for people to go like immerse themselves in. They just they have a job. No, have you I, thought I, about I, like those yeah. types of things happening within your ecosystem? Oh, absolutely. And I, I think one of the big distinctions between Diablo 3 doing this and let's say we're doing this with CSEs, one, the genre and the type of the game. Um, really, we're not doing anything that's new. Gray markets in the Eve doing exactly yeah. this have existed forever. And yeah. botted accounts is an issue across all games. And we have our plans in place to deal with bots, but bots are going to exist and we're going to figure it out. I think your example of you playing the auction house is a player we do want. We do have a certain percentage of players that they're just looking at the marketplace and trying to figure out how to move items from here to over here so they could sell it in an area where they can make more profit. That's I mean, exactly D immediately asked, how do I make a pawn shop? Like, that's yeah. the first thing that he said was, yeah. how do I take advantage of this? <laughs> but, you know, there's an economy in the game. You know, you're going to have people who play for the next great item, and we're definitely going to get people and Chinese botters coming in and trying to farm out items, and we'll, we'll deal with that like every other game tries to deal with that. But I think in the end, the value proposition for the user, really, if you put 40 hours a day or 40 hours a week into a game, being able to have an item that has some value. So when you're done playing, you can exchange that for Ethereum or you can sell that in game for additional currency. Or if you're within our ecosystem, you trade that for something that you can play in another game. That's really what we wanted to empower uh, with uh, adding blockchain to our game, giving users value for what they're doing. Yes, it creates a ton of complexity. And Blizzard is a much larger company than us, and they had trouble executing this. But I think Blizzard was trying to do two different things there. They were trying to make they're they were trying to make the next Diablo, which is, you know, a challenge among itself. And they added this layer that, you know, maybe we don't know at what point that came the decision making process. It seems like a good idea. But you know, to that there was also other problems with Diablo Three in the start, because I played it too the randomized loot system, there's a lot of things that led to needing to farm to get the best oh, items because yeah. you couldn't get the best items without buying them off the marketplace. Corey, you and I play games so differently. It's like so different. Oh, I, I, I play... No fantasy, yeah. I, don't, I don't play for fun. It's, it's an optimization game for me. Like it's how do I play this the best possible way? Yeah. <laughs> I, I spent yeah, more time theory crafting uh, builds in Diablo 3 than I did actually playing the game like i was looking to understand the, like the, the balance dynamics and game mechanics of how things work and then crafting what you should be doing as opposed to actually doing it so you'll mm. fit in with the CSE mm. community because i've seen countless community spreadsheets figuring out optimal build ratios and refining ratios and someone finally figured out how to get that 99 percent efficiency and refining it, it, basically it's a spreadsheet game but this is the type of genre we've created in CSE. We are looking, it's a deeper game, it's an economic-driven game, and that's kind of the user base we're looking for. People who like sci- sci-fi sims, um, 
MMOs and uh, playing the economy. See, I uh, I turned myself into a digital pimp in Fantasy Final Fantasy fourteen, <laughs> and uh, we can go down that rabbit hole if you want to. But I have a lot of money in Final Fantasy fourteen. <laughs> um, but anyways, uh, no second of all, it was that kind of pimpery, but it was very pimpish. Anyways, um, so I have some things. One, how do you protect players like me, who I started to play Eve and I loved it. I was like, oh, this is great. Like, this is actually using my real lifetime to get digital stuff. I love it. But I clicked to go somewhere in space and I fell asleep. And I'm pretty sure I got the warning that's like, are you sure you would like to do this, which is most, you're going to die. And I was yeah. like, yeah, whatever. The autopilot warning. There you go. And when I woke up, there was just like a little pod in space. <laughs> and I was like, oh, what happened? And I had now lost two weeks worth of my actual human lifetime in that boat that I had been saving up for and upgrading and really excited, fighting battles and winning. And at that point in time is when I never played Eve again. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I saw my little body pod floating. I was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. This is it. Uh, that's it. I, I gave it a good strong two weeks and, and I fell asleep and now I don't have a boat anymore. And so yeah. I just won't have a boat ever again. That so is a I huge think. challenge. Um, it's something even today is still trying to figure out how to make that first time user experience feel a little bit more safe without ruining the, the core of the game. And what you described, it happens in our game all the time. Uh, users think they're safe. They're flying someplace. Happened to me and Eve, but after that happened the first time, I didn't stop playing. I played harder. Um, it's 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 mm. just kinds it's, of it's a different dynamic of players. Yeah. You just call me a quitter? Did you just call, yeah. did you just call me a quitter? You are a loser <laughs> and a quitter. Uh, well, I, I mean, it's hard. It's hard to lose two weeks worth of stuff when you're playing a game. I mean, it, it completely yeah. is. But, you know, that, that that's also what makes it fun. It's also what creates the value proposition. Now, I will say, like, um, our other game. And for murders. Yeah. completely different approach <laughs> so i mean the nice thing about what we're doing here at lucid site is we have you know two separate teams working on two different dynamics of how blockchain can be incorporated in games um and we're seeing results in both of them. Uh, mlb mm-hmm. champions recently launched on ios and android we're up to like forty thousand monthly active users it's a much more casual base but we use blockchain very differently uh, we use it in a similar sense where every item has a unique identifier and you, you can mint it but in MLB Champions, the minting of an asset has become gamified, meaning just going out, grinding, opening a pack and getting an item doesn't mean that you can instantly go mint it on the blockchain and sell it. You need to train that item, power it up, and eventually what we call sign it, where you basically sacrifice a bunch of other players of lower but close to quali- the same quality. When you sacrifice them, they get destroyed and burnt, and then that upgrades that figure that you picked into what we call the sign figure, where you'll see the player signature on it. It'll get uh, double the uh, play power that it normally has for the game simulator. And when it's signed, it then appears on the website for a user to then mint and then do a trade on the secondary market, put it in their wallet. So there's actually a lot of barriers in MLB Champions before you can even get the item onto the blockchain. But that basically is our way of controlling scarcity. 
Because instead of people just buying a bunch of items or opening a lot of packs or spending you know hundreds of hours grinding to get players, you get those players and they're great. There's still that one additional grind where there's a pretty big sacrifice you have to make to make it a blockchain asset. Uh, and that adds a whole new dynamic and element to it, and then also increases the value of those items that go to the blockchain. Is that is that so kind of like the, the goal there? You want things to have, you're trying to optimize the use of people doing blockchain stuff so people can kind of, what actually ends up going to the blockchain is something you think will actually be used and not discarded or, or forgotten about or wasted. And so you're, you're not wasting those resources and, and, and using that part of the system. Because like with, anytime you're using um open permissionless blockchains you're it's it's going to be costly because it's a public infrastructure right like you're, you yeah. have to pay to access that type of thing and in order to optimize that you kind of have to make sure people when people go in to do that they're doing it with it with a real intention they have they want to use it they want to do it they're and, they, and they've and they've like kind of what you said they put in some real man hours into it and there's something to lose if something goes wrong and that's exactly right, because in MLB Champions, once you mint a, a figure, it can never be destroyed. By, by the design of the contract, we have no burn functionality in it, uh, unlike CSC. So when it becomes that blockchain asset, it's yours forever. It's a, it's a collectible for the rest of eternity. Um, so the steps you do in gameplay to get to that point have to have that same consequence. Like, you know, this is, this is my Aaron Judd. He's on a wooden base with a sapphire bat. It has a one in 4.5 billion chance of appearing in the game, and I got it. Well, now I'm going to burn up a bunch of other players to let me sign it and lock it to the blockchain, or let me sign it and get it in full power mode. Then it enables it for the blockchain, where then I can mint it, and now it's a blockchain asset that I can use year over year in the game or store it in there. Uh, a crypto wallet or just look at it on my computer are you like based on that that ux you just described are you coming up with game mechanics to kind of obfuscate the the current usability problems of, of blockchain or um have you kind of are you, are you is, it, is it making you more creative and what you can do with game mechanics you know what i mean when i ask that like are you trying to cover up the difficulty using blockchain through gamification or is it the opposite are you like coming up with new types of games in the process of incorporating blockchain into like how you already used to design games yeah we we are not trying to we're not trying to fix the blockchain interface issue right now what we decided uh for both our titles is look let's focus on making a good game that has blockchain elements the blockchain portions of it can be accessed from users who want to go through that process so in both mlb champions and CSE. You could create an account like you normally create an account. You play the game. You'll acquire blockchain assets, but all that's managed by our scarcity engine system in our virtual blockchain until you're ready to take the step of getting an Ethereum address, adding ETH, and minting the item. Uh, so that's the way we take that approach. So we're not trying to gamify just just to obfuscate uh, blockchain actions. We gamified the signing of MLD players because we thought it was a good way of tying effort in the game to creating a a asset that could last, you know, centuries. Damn, that's slick, man. I got my hats off to you. Thank you. Um, I have a Okay, after you, I got I got one more real quick one. But go, go ahead. I have way more questions. I have a lot of questions. Well, then let me let me go one. first. Then if you have okay. way more, I got one more. Uh, 
Shit, I forgot it. <laughs> I already <laughs> forgot it because I got excited about it. Go ahead, Dio. Come back to me. All right, you might want to write it down. Got right, it. Cool. I gotta wait. Um. So my my question is like, well, Corey, I think Corey, what you're touching on, I just want to be like straight up about it. If this blows up and gets really popular, I can't. Ether can't even handle that many transactions. So I don't know if you addressed this earlier in the interview, and I was just you know phased out. But I mean, what do you do at that point? Yeah, um, so we, we do have a method in place to scale this, both with CSC and MLB. Um, it's called Scarcity Engine. It's basically our virtualized Ethereum blockchain uh, that can scale indefinitely. It's built on modern databases, modern APIs. It can emulate everything the blockchain needs to do. Let's say the game blows up. We have a million people playing, and tomorrow 500,000 people decide in the same 10-hour span that they want to mint their asset. Well, the beauty of Scarcity Engine is we batch. So the system will scale. It'll look at the, the output that we can do on the Ethereum network. It'll look at what our fixed costs are going to be for doing it. And it'll batch that over time and let the user know when it's filled. So as Ethereum gets better and faster, we can push more to it. But in its current state, we'll batch and handle it as time permits. Mm, so you batch it all and you get batch. And the user will that. never not be able to use your asset. Instantly, they'll be able to use your asset. They'll see that it's going to be minted or pending minting. And they'll see that it's still in the game. They're still able to interact with it. The only thing they're waiting for is for it to actually get written to the blockchain. Interesting. So how many verticals in crypto are you guys talking to? Like, do you, Are you thinking, are you talking about getting exchanges integrated into it? So that they can get that instantaneous, oh, I go mint this resource in this universe and then I can go back to my space hut and then tap into Bittrex and go ahead and get that exchange made, get that get that money out into the real world faster. Well, right now, all our assets are NFTs and there really is no exchange for that other than like OpenSea and some other marketplaces. Um, so, you know, our. Our system is designed to scale for multiple games, and we have public interfaces to pull information from that. Um, we'll see where it goes. Right now, we're focused more on creating a good gaming experience and great UI that both the mobile client players and our PC players and Mac players can interact with these assets, see their value, see the value proposition of having them on blockchain. And eventually, as blockchain technology improves or they get more sophisticated, they can figure out how to bring it there and do more creative things. Mm. I remember my question. Mm. It's it, it ties into what you just said. You. I found I found I got it. Like based on that, like what are you excited about? Like you've 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 had real world um, games that integrate blockchain. You've built virtualization machines that handle scale so that you can interface the blockchain appropriately while still running your game smoothly. What are you excited about? Um, both in how you can make games using this technology, as well as like how the technology progresses to make you interface, make make that interface more more smooth. Well, I think what really excites me is the fact that we're now tying into a a thing in gaming that's existed for a while. People have always coveted their digital items. I, I remember my World of Warcraft account. I probably still have it. And it, it has a bunch of things that have spent a lot of time, energy, and, you know, money, you know, monthly subscription fee to earn. And what we've enabled in both these, in both these games and with our systems is now 
being able to create a tangible item out of that digital asset. So that tangible item, even though it's still virtual, has a dollar value, can be traded independently. Giving that interface to our games, and then hopefully eventually to a lot of games, and then users, just in general, seeing the value proposition, then demanding this from other titles. And if you play Fortnite and you buy 100 skins, and you decide, you know, you're done with Fortnite, you want to go to Apex, you should have that option to sell those skins, recoup some of that value. I could do that with DVDs. I could do that with furniture and my television, my computer desk, computer parts. Why can't we do that with digital items where arguably we spend more time to earn? Yeah. Like people grind. People really grind. I've, I've, I've often told people who, who like grind that hard. If like, if you, if you work this hard at life, you'd be really successful. Like, yeah. <laughs> it's very well, true. Tell them to come over to TSE. There's an opportunity there. Yeah, there's an opportunity. There they're, they're, the, they're the grinders we need. I mean, right now, our like you know, we, we were talking about complex economies before, and I wish I could spend hours describing oh you God, the yes. systems we have in place to manage these economies because we have about 3,500 unique items in the game. All of them require components. They require subcomponents. Require sub subcomponents. And it, it's a it's a web, and we have some beautiful tooling that we use, our designers use to get economic snapshots, see variability, see when something spikes. Uh, because we use random uh, distribution engines for resources, we just set like waiting values. But once in a while, uh, like a, a few weeks ago, we saw a huge concentration of iridium just show up in the system, just completely outside the blue. It's just because the RNG hit really strong. And what was really surprising was we have 58 systems in the game, and it takes hours to get this on these systems. There's there's no sense of instantaneous travel in CSC. You could either, uh, in a slow ship, it could take you 24 hours to get from one end of the universe to the other. But people found that node about two to three hours after it was created, and they were just hammering at it over and over, and we saw this huge spike in iridium for that day. Uh, it actually doubled the entire amount that existed in the universe at that time. Um, and that was, you know, problematic because all of a sudden now you got a one guild as a monopoly and a key resource. But, you know, that'll eventually burn out as they're crafting it and making items. And it was interesting that the, the incident occurred. But what was even more interesting is that our economic indicators and our systems were able to identify that within 24 hours. And we made adjustments to the waiting across the board to kind of balance that out. Oh, man, I would love to be a fly on the wall. In that system, just to look at what's going on in that ecosystem and see kind of that, uh, that, that how the world progresses dynamically on like on the economy and how it, the random number generator impacts that type of stuff. That's that must I be mean, fun it, to watch. It, 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 I mean, it's mathematically beautiful, and I, just as a side project, I'm creating a visualizer just so I could watch this in real time as it's happening. It is it is cool. I mean, I'm a numbers guy. I'm a numbers nerd. I love this stuff. So. It's amazing to see how the economic economy is developing. It's, uh, you know, at some point here, we're probably going to need a full-time economist uh, just to keep handle of all the different moving parts in our game. Uh, but for now, we have it systematized. I know a guy. You need one. That's good to know. He has master's in economics. He's a smart guy. Right now, he's a consultant, but I'm pretty sure he's not wanting to I do think- that. Eve has two or three economists on staff at the moment right now at their scale. So hopefully as we grow, that's the problem we get. Get a fun job. (laughs) Mm, I thought economics is the dismal science. Isn't that what they call it? I don't know. 
You guys ever heard that? Oh, that's what they call it, anyways. That's what he always used to tell me, because uh, he's like, I don't know, I don't know why they call it dismal, but looks like fun to me. I have a question. Um, so Corey, you're gonna hate that I say this, so you're gonna throw up in your mouth. I've always tried, just so I can make proof of stake simple in my head, is that proof of stake systems are like virtual mining. It's like virtualized proof of work. It's, that's the only way I can make it make sense. So given that, um, could you mine in your game and it be mining like crypto like mining crypto? We we could, but there's no need for it. And oh. I guess that's my best answer here. Like, uh, the resources in our game, um, the core resources, uh, I think there's 24 of them, those are technically ERC-20s. So when you check them out of the system, you could actually get a token for them. Uh, and then you can check them back in, the token gets burnt and creates a virtual item. Um, so technically, when you're mining Trilite or you're mining Iridium or you're mining Cosmetus or you're mining Iron, those are generating tokens uh, in their raw form, and then you refine it, and then you get the refined form. Mm. So, yes, but I, I don't think we'd ever do anything like Bitcoin or Ethereum or anything else. So the the bastardization of the term there. mining, D. I, I think it's talking about two different things here. It's, there's no consensus associated with mining in the game, You're not agreeing on something, yeah. just putting in work to try and uh, obtain... Together. So that's below the difficulty. So the work we're just getting. But anyways, that's that's a different conversation for a different time. Uh, I'm obviously fascinated with your game. I wish I had the time to play it, but I know many people that do. So I will be putting in a good word. Uh, I'll leave you with our trademark question. You'll probably knock this out of the ballpark. In 10 words or less, can you describe... Ethereum. Uh, a cryptographically secured distributed record of digital assets. Yeah, it's, it's like everybody knocks it out of the ballpark now, Corey. I think we've reached a new epoch in the life of crypto technology and blockchain tech. That's only because we deal with it every day, so it's always at the top of our head. So um thank you very much this has been an amazing interview um i like interviews like this where we get, like i didn't think somebody would be able to pull it off but you've like pulled off all the things uh so okay. i think your game is gonna be, i think your game's gonna be great um I, I i'm impressed with with everything you said here um thank you for actually like using the tech and not uh you know, not saying that. So I say that for a reason. Back in 2017, we interviewed a lot of people that would say they were using the tech, but in reality, they were just using a bunch of Amazon web servers and like lying about it. And so it's really refreshing that it feels like, what is this, three years after that craze, um, there's a company that's actually like, no, we're using it. We're using it well. And people are having fun. And it's in the background doing what it needs to do. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. Great talking to you guys. Thanks for having me.